So I, I would definitely encourage people to be prepared for the fact that somebody's going to try and retrade them at the one yard line for a better deal. And they have to be ready to kind of, you know, at those points, it's usually whoever needs it the least is going to win. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Rob Emery, a serial telecom and pet industry entrepreneur with two exits under his belt. Early in his career, Rob started selling cell phones through his own retail outlets. After merging his retail locations with a franchise partner, Rob sold off his retail locations and founded ProtectCell to focus on selling cell phone protection and replacement service plans. Through operational excellence and great business relationships, ProtectCell became one of Inc. Magazine's 500 fastest growing companies in the country. Rob, looking for a financial partner to grow the business further, ended up selling the majority of the business in 2012 and then selling the remaining equity two years later. Today, after investing in the pet industry as a hobby, Rob is now the owner and CEO of Encompass Pet Group, which distributes high-quality pet foods and products, manages pet retail outlets, and sells the hugely popular pet comfort product, Snuggle Puppy. In our discussion, Rob advises business owners to, one, build your data room every day so you're ready to exit when a buyer comes calling, two, to conduct real due diligence on your buyer if you're going to roll equity, and three, how installing operational excellence and infrastructure can allow a business owner to grow by buying other companies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rob Emery. Rob, thank you so much for being here. I am particularly excited to chat with you because of kind of the variety of background M&A experiences you had, but you've been in multiple industries, just kind of entrepreneur at heart. And I think you got so many lessons to share with our, our listeners and our fellow founders that, you know, frankly, Mark Cuban had this spot. And when you said you were ready, I said, all right, he's bumped, you're in. So I'm really <laughs> looking forward to this. All right. Well, you know, there's nobody I'd rather bump aside than him. So I appreciate the opportunity, <laughs> Todd. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, you know, the best place to start, let's let's start from the beginning. You know, you start as an entrepreneur selling cell phones and, and why, don't you, why don't you take us from there? Sure. Uh, so I started my career basically out of high school, uh, pretty much selling cell phones and actually installing them back in the day and ended up opening my own location in 1993. That was my first store. It was what eventually became Verizon Wireless stores. I think they were called Cellular One back then and then AirTouch and then Verizon. Uh, ran those stores, kind of grew locations over time and was able to get up to, I think I had about seven or so. And uh, I was asked to join a franchise organization in 2001 or 2002, mm -hmm. uh, which I did and um, learned a lot of good lessons in that thing of what to do and what not to do in life, what not to do in life. And uh, throughout that experience, we started to learn about different types of products that you could sell at wireless locations, one of which was kind of a warranty or insurance product. Turns out the company that was our franchisor ended up going out of business by violating its Verizon wireless contract. Uh, we had to go back and negotiate with Verizon to get our agreement back. 
But we did take, uh, which I did, was successfully did. One of the things that we took from that arrangement was this, we had learned about selling warranties or insurance products inside of our stores. Uh, so when we got out of this agreement and back on our own, we started to sell warranty products at our locations. And in 2006, decided to make that into its own entity yeah. uh, and start selling warranties and, and insurance products to other cell phone retailers, primarily Verizon retailers. We had a pretty good run there. We ran that from 06 uh, at zero revenue to 20,000 in 2012, where we were up to about 93 million in revenue and sold it to a publicly traded insurance company. Rob, okay, so <laughs> I think that you just packed in a ton there. And, uh, you know, I started with you were selling cell phones out of high school, right? So, how do you go from selling cell phones to opening up your first store? And I think as you described it, it, it eventually becomes a Verizon store. So how, how does that happen? Um, that was just, uh, I think, a desire to kind of be on my own and see if I could make it work. The guy I worked with at the time was kind of doing cell phones and car stereos. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really have much desire to stay in the car stereo space. Uh, at that point, I kind of just would like to be in cell phones because I thought that that was a future thing that was just going to continue to grow. We could see it growing at our location. So we thought it would be a, a growth opportunity uh, to just do a smaller footprint and only focus on that. Got it. And so that's successful enough that you grow that into into multiple retail locations. And then do you, do you license the Verizon brand? How do you become a, a Verizon official store? Uh, yeah, it was like a, a reselling agreement, basically, you know, because the store I was at before, prior to opening my own, sold Verizon. I already knew most of the folks that were local in the Michigan market. So I was able to uh, connect with them and get a get an agreement on my own. That's great. Okay. So now you're asked to go into this franchise agreement. Did that feel like you were selling part of the business? Was that a growth strategy? Any liquidity around that for you personally? It was a, it was an interesting uh, liquidity. I don't know if the, is the right phrase for it, but basically my stores needed renovating and the guy offered to renovate my locations if I kind of came along with him. From a personal perspective, it was kind of nice because I was able to uh, step back from running the day to day of all the stores, and I sold off a bunch of my existing stores. I think I had 13 at the time. I started selling them off, kept the main ones. And then my agreement with the franchisor was that I got 50% of the franchise revenue in Michigan for any units that I developed. So if a unit was paying 5% or 6% to the franchisor, I was getting 25 or 3% of the revenue of all these different cell phone stores. So it's just an easy, easy deal to look at something else as, from a career perspective, you know, like yep. uh, being in the franchise business, learning a little bit about that and working for the franchisor. So. Okay. So that's awesome. And, and you structured that contract yourself, which obviously became very lucrative for you to open stores and keep selling. Right. Yeah. It's, it made it, uh, you know, the more stores I opened, the better I did and the better the corporation did at the same time. So. It was a win-win well, for sure. Well, when you say better for the corporation, it sounded like they ended up running into some trouble. Right. Yeah, it wasn't really financial trouble. I think it was more of a, uh, you know, they were doing something that they're selling other brands, like they were selling T-Mobile when they had an exclusive contract with Verizon, so Verizon terminated them. 
So they were just kind of not operating above the table. But they had the other product you talked about, right? The the product protection plans. Yeah. So they, they sold the protection plan at these franchises. When they got shut down by Verizon, there was about 85 stores. So there was a lot of people that were impacted in that wow. in that deal. And, you know, it was a real shame for a lot of those folks because I think most of them weren't able to just kind of go back and renegotiate with Verizon. Like, fortunately, I was able to because I had maintained a nice relationship here in the market. But uh, yeah, we learned all about selling these kind of warranty or insurance plans in the in the uh, locations. And then the people that we were selling, their product just was not very good. It was bad okay. for the end user. It was bad for the stores. It was just not set up well. So we just set out to fix that. You had a little bit of a start, right? How potentially how how not to do it. Right. And and then this becomes an enormous business for you, right? This hits the the Inc. 500 list and you're growing this year after year. And eventually, is that the first business that you really, you truly have an exit on? It, it was, yes. It, it was uh, a crazy, crazy ride from literally nothing <laughs> to 90 million in six years, of which most of that happened in year four, five, and six. And uh, we, we ended up selling that business exactly in our busiest month ever. Oh, man. Okay. So I mean, a lot of founders ask us, right, what is it going to take to actually sell a business? And we're always explaining, you know, please, if you have a set of projections, you got to hit those projections. Do not get distracted. You know, keep your eye on the ball and build the business. And you sell in the month that you're the busiest ever. And I remember reading about this, right? I think you had sold your millionth plan. At some point, maybe was it in 2011? I don't have the exact date, but you guys were on a tear. I don't remember exact dates, but right before we sold, I think we sold 70,000 new new customers that month, something along that lines. That's crazy. So how did you manage the M&A process and this kind of extraordinary growth? Uh, the growth part first was something that I had never done or my partner. We Neither one of us had ever done anything like it. I can clearly remember a day walking into his office and saying, Hey man, have you ever done this before? He said, done what? <laughs> and I said, you know, ran a business that's like 20 million in revenue and growing. He's like, no. And I said, well, me neither. Uh, so maybe we should probably look for some help. So in that business, we turned to, um, we did an EOS process. I'm sure you've heard yep, of that. Sure. So we did EOS. We kind of felt at that point, like we had good executive people that could, could make decisions, but we were literally running so fast that it was getting in our way to, you know, making sure like, when do you hire your key people? Do you hire them when you have enough revenue to hire them? Or do you hire them because you know, you're going to get to enough revenue to support them down the road. So we were dealing with a lot of those types of things at that speed that we were growing. All right. But, but you're successful. You just keep growing. You're managing the growth, the, the cash flow. And, uh, you know, what prompts you to decide to sell the business? Is somebody knocking on the door or did you think it was time to run a process? Kind of a two-part answer to that, I guess. So in 2007, we got a call one day at our office just randomly. There's probably 10 people that worked there at the time. And we got a call from um, the assistant to the president of Marsha McLennan, the world's largest insurance broker, who basically said, you know, I've been trying to get my iPhone insured and nobody will do it except for you. So my boss wants to buy you guys. Nice. Um, so it was 
that was crazy because we went down the path of doing due diligence with them. And you talked earlier about the, the business plan and meeting projections. We, we had written a nice business plan and we had an outside guy come in and do all the projection work for us. And we just kept, you know, we looked at what he put together and we were laughing at it because the revenue growth was so high. And then every quarter we were beating it, beating it, beating it, beating it. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. So when these guys called from Marsh and McLennan, it really made us um, step back and really dig in and get the business kind of set up. We didn't end up selling to Marsh because it, it was literally at their board of director meeting on the day AIG collapsed in 2008. And they were the largest AIG broker in the world. Wow. Yeah. You know, it, bringing up that point, right? Getting ready to sell. I know when you and I've chatted, that's it's really important, right? Having that data room ready that that I'm sure what EOS puts you through is being incredibly organized and, and diligent about your processes and recording that, right? For, so a buyer can can step in and understand what they would be getting, and it gives you a huge advantage. Can you talk a little bit about how you created, you know, getting your house in order in and potentially you know, what were the benefits of doing that when it came to exiting? Sure. I think that, you know, we were a company that was pretty disciplined in making sure that we had all our data in order all the way along uh, because, you know, we were a insurance business that we were kind of collecting the money up front for two years from a customer. So you couldn't just spend all that money. You had to reserve some for claims and you had to manage your expenses for your claim expense. Uh, so we were doing all that type of stuff anyway. Um, and we were very disciplined about doing that on a month to month basis. And then when our original process that we went through was actually to raise capital, it wasn't to sell. And um, one of the people that was in that capital raising process uh, ended up wanting to buy us. So we went down that, ended up diverting and going down that path. That's interesting. Can we jump into that a little bit? So you're going out to raise capital to, to grow. It was, was any of that to kind of take some chips off the table? Yeah, we would have done a little of both. Uh, I okay. think we we're out to raise like $10 million. And as we went through the process, there was so much interest in our deal. We, you asked earlier how we went through it. We hired um, somebody to help us out. So, you know, when we set up our data room, went through all that kind of stuff with, with that company broker and then, you know, when we put out our our in, uh, books to see if people had interest, we had like 200 different VCs that looked at us and we got so many kind of indications of interest and so many meetings set up that the whole process took probably 10 months end to end. That's great. Okay. So you decide, right, that you're, you're going to raise some capital. You go out and hire an investment bank, right, to, to do this. And they are willing to run a dual process or was it, no, strictly we're, we're fundraising. And at some point they call an audible, right, to sell the business right. because that's where the interest is. You, you mentioned, you know, 200 or 100 venture capital firms. So traditionally, right, venture is buying a minority interest, Right? They're investing in a business and getting a, a percentage that isn't controlling. So how does a buyer step up out of this? It's, it's not a venture firm, but maybe a private equity firm? Right. So there was both. So, you know, there were people that were willing to buy minority interest, invest money, because, and there were people that wanted to do majority interest. And then the particular company that we ended up selling it to was really one of the only ones that was a strategic buyer. So everybody else was kind of an investor and these guys were very strategic. 
So that's why they were pushing to own it because it fit and, into their portfolio. And and were they willing to pay more because they were strategic? Like what, what made you really decide to go with them? Yeah, I mean, the, most of the uh, capital folks, you know, if you're asking to raise ten million, they're they're telling you, you know, here's what we can do for ten million. These guys did come out with you know substantially more and and just said, you know, we want to own it and. They were willing to also do the investment part, but at the end of the day, you know, for us, it was just an opportunity to to exit and step out of it. And we felt like it was good timing and it turned out to be just that. So it's a it's an emotional shift, right? Where you're going to raise and grow to, hey, we're going to exit and we're going to live with this new partner who's going to really control the next few years, right? I'm assuming you... Uh, you stayed on board for an earnout period. Can you yep, two maybe years. take yeah take us through what that structure of that sale looked like, if you don't mind? Sure. We sold just a little over sixty percent on the first go round, and then uh, just under forty percent on the second. And it kind of had some predefined terms to it, as far as uh, performance terms that could change the outcome of that. And you know, once once we got to the end of it, the two years. It, it was like myself, my partner, and a couple of the executives that we had there, you know, we weren't really made to be working at publicly traded insurance company. So from a culture perspective, we didn't fit in there. You know, I always kind of joke around that it was probably illegal for me to be an executive vice president of an <laughs> insurance company, a publicly traded company, because I had zero, you know, traditional insurance background, you know, I was a retail phone guy. That That's was, right. That's that right. You had a serious. Plans. You had a serious title over there. Yeah, I had to get out of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is it's it's uh, it's fascinating. So you you're making the decision to sell control sixty percent of the business and essentially roll equity forty percent of the equity you still own, and you're expecting over a period of time that that's going to be bought out, right? And mm-hmm. so you're really investing in this strategic partner. You know, di- how much due diligence were you doing on them that made you feel comfortable to to leave a substantial part of your net worth in in the hands of that combined entity? Yeah, I think when you do stuff and it's your first time, you just don't know as much and, you know, hindsight in these cases is definitely 2020. Uh, so going forward, you know, we would take different approaches to what we took at this particular one. But you know, we did as much homework as we could, you know, look, looked up all their public records and make sure that everything was on the up and up. And, you know, in hindsight, there were definitely some key signs there that would have gave you the uh, uh, stop sign, you know, on a go for on the next, you know, deals that we do, we would probably have passed on this, given some of the things that happened in retrospect. Yeah. But, you know, when you get down to, uh, this was going to close at the end of the year. And so the, almost all the paperwork on this happened between Thanksgiving and Christmas at the end of 2012. And we had mandated that it had to close at 12 because the capital gains tax went up on January 1st. Huh. Uh, so we were pushing them really hard and telling them if, if you don't close, the price is going up, you know, to cover this tax increase that the partners are going to have. You know, it was a race to the finish. And, you know, when you get down to the five yard line, two yard line, one yard line, 
they, you know, once you find out the things you find out about them, it's tough to pull out when that check's dangling in front of you. So we, uh, we, yeah. were, we were hesitant to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, we tell a lot of our founders that the investment bankers that are representing you really need to know these, these buyers well so you can make that recommendation. We're constantly in that conversation. Is this the right partner to roll equity, essentially invest in? You know, to be a good steward of my capital and make that capital grow, right? When we talk about the second or third bite of the apple, a lot of times if you're rolling 40%, that second bite of the apple could be much bigger than the 60% initial right. initial paycheck. And, and how did that end up turning out for you financially when they made the second purchase two years later? I think that the second one was probably a lot lower. Um, okay. There were some things that changed in the industry that we were in, in that the cell phone carriers stopped allowing third-party people to sell insurance pretty much. So it, it was getting tougher and tougher to operate inside that window. And, you know, that drove the, the revenue down. And, and the way that these guys operated was so much different than how we did stuff. You know, we, we built up sales teams and we built up relationships and all this kind of stuff. And there they were kind of looking at it from a strict insurance thing. So basically, we could have made a killing on that business if we would have got to the first closing, fired our whole team and just let it run out. We would have probably made way more than we did because they would have shown a huge profit yeah. on the way they do their books. But that wasn't in our makeup, you know, to be firing our team and uh, cleaning house. You know, we were still trying to grow the business and make new accounts and do all the stuff that we needed to do. So we were really in there trying. But the way we did our bookkeeping and the way they did their bookkeeping were kind of different from, from, uh, you know, the traditional insurance perspective. And, you know, again, that's another thing in retrospect, I could have probably just laid everybody off and gave them a year of severance and still came out way on the upside of the deal at, at the end of the two years. Yeah, but hindsight, right? Twenty twenty, you know, you really oh, yeah. don't know what you're getting into, and like you said, it's kind of, uh, you know, the rosy, rosy eyeglasses, and you're just trying to get that deal done. The first check is enormous, and you know, it's life changing, right? So right. we tell a lot of founders th that, you know, you don't want to count on that second check, but you know, with the right partner, that can be many times uh, much, much more meaningful. You know, in our conversations, what has really impressed upon me is how you think about operational excellence, right? And we, I think you've talked a couple times now how the way you built companies and teams and processes is very different from one your franchiser and now your acquirer. So I'm guessing, you know, you you t you take the next step, right? You're going into another industry or making investments, but you also have learned a lot and you're continuing this kind of operational excellence moving forward. Can you take me what's the next step after you're out in 2014? Um, so when we exited the first time in 2013, I was still working till the end of 2014, but I started to invest in little things here and there, several different businesses, just people hear that you sold something, they want to talk to you about it, they want to understand it. And then some of the people are looking for both consultative help and also capital potentially. And so I talked to a lot of people about both of those different types of things. Originally, we kind of set up our own little, I don't know if it's like a boutique shop, like just kind of doing these types of things, meeting these types of people. The guy who was our business broker, he, they 
would send us people that were too small for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a bunch of leads coming in and we ended up investing. I say we, my CFO from Protexel came with me and, and we ended up doing, uh, you know, a couple deals here and there, depending on, you know, just different scenarios. So a couple examples are like one was a, a brewery restaurant that we, that I bought into, uh, I invested in that. These guys were actually my landscapers and they wanted to open a restaurant. That's still going great. I'm still a partner in that. We did um, like an automotive roll up where these guys had a great idea where they were rolling up mechanics that were kind of getting older and they didn't have any discipline in their bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. And their kids didn't want the business. So basically these older mechanics were like shutting down instead of selling. And these guys were scooping them up and rolling them up into a bigger play, which we had seen a lot of people doing that with like paint shops and body shops and all that kind of stuff around the country. So this was a a good thing and it didn't work out for us with the partners, but still ended up okay from a financial perspective. And we invested in a couple little cell phone related businesses. And, you know, one was a little uh, device that would kind of go in your car and measure all the metrics in your car and be able to pass it off to an insurance company and stuff like it's a little i've never been really huge into technology stuff i'm more of a simple you know i like simple things that i know are going to work like beer and cars and pets and stuff like that cell phones things people always have yeah those are more my style than than high tech stuff well, so, uh, you know, what's the next step, right? You got a little family office or venture fund, you're making these investments, but what, what's going to be kind of the next full-time effort? Uh, so during that process, we got into a product called Snuggle Puppy, which is a pet toy, which is a, a dog toy, basically with a beating heartbeat in it. That's good for calming puppies. It was something that I knew the guy who owned it and invested with him. And uh, that business, I invested in 13 and over the next three years or so, it continuously needed more capital, more capital, more capital. By 16, I ended up owning the whole thing. And that was kind of not really where I wanted to be at that stage of my life. You know, and when I sold all these businesses at 46, I was pretty much retired. Mm-hmm. And now I find myself with this pet business that I have basically a full-time gig. And I, I just kind of got determined that I just wanted to get my money back out of that So set down the path of doing the same type of thing, like, uh, you know, never having imported product from overseas or sold product to big retailers. There's a lot of learning curve in there. So but we had to set up everything in that business, warehousing and finance and sales team and everything else, grow more products, have more products to be able to sell stuff like that. Okay, so you're really uh, kind of a pet product retailer at that point, right? More than uh, wholesale, like mostly, yeah, mostly Amazon, and then we got into PetSmart and Petco and stuff like that. So, but mostly, mostly online and some in store. Yeah, um, the product that we have is great, and it yeah. gets like unbelievably re- great reviews on Amazon. And once we fixed a couple of the key issues in the business, uh, like a, a simple example was when I got it, we had all of the SKUs in stock that were not selling and not the SKUs in, in stock that were selling. So, you know, once we solved those problems by buying the right SKUs, then the revenue started trickling up. And this particular product kind of gained like its own little organic 
I won't call it like a cult following. I don't know if that's the right word, but got a lot of organic growth. I think that, you know, as people started using, you know, this is like key growth area for Amazon and online buying and, you know, during those time periods and people were writing great reviews about it. And then it, as it continued to rank better and better, more people were finding it. And then it started becoming like, you know, USA Today, top 10 things you need for your new puppy. You know, nice. it's getting written about on BuzzFeed and Huffington Post. And, you know, it's on the news and all this kind of stuff. So it keeps getting all of these kind of like um, accolades that we didn't really ask for. We never knew even any that any of these articles were coming out, but it was getting article after article after article after article. So it just kept growing in popularity and growing in popularity. As that's we went great. Along. So, yeah, that's that's great. I mean, you obviously you you wanted to get your money back, but you believed in the product initially, and right. it just just took longer and good management, right? It needed time, management, and capital, and you've turned this into a little bit of a cult following. That's great, but it's really that's a launching pad, right? To more products, distributing, warehousing, much more for what lots of independent retailers. Yeah, so we've kind of taken this business and in in grew it through 2019 you know we got to the end of 19 and and or end of 18 and one of my business partners said hey you know we should get into retailing because you know you have a great retail background and you know now you're importing all these products from overseas so when you put those in your own store you'll have ginormous margins on your own product Uh, so we did set down that path and we opened up three retail stores in florida in 2019 then we also, in 19, purchased one of the distributors that was distributing dog food to us. I had met with the guy just to talk to him about sharing warehouse space, and, and it just became clear that he could use some help getting his business in, in alignment. Uh, the guy did, I think, a great job considering he was a police sheriff and his wife was a nurse, and they were basically working this gig during the day and working their night jobs to kind of keep cash flowing in and they got it pretty much to the where they could get it up to and again it wasn't going to succeed without infrastructure capital you know warehousing logistics and all of the stuff that goes with that type of business so yeah i mean that that's the operational excellence that that i'm talking about right so you can enable some really great products uh to be kind of financially viable okay so you keep building this is this choice pet products what's the name of this organization uh, the whole organization is called Encompass Pet Group. Okay. And it has three divisions. It has the Snuggle Puppy Division, which is kind of like a direct consumer play or like retail products. It has Choice Pet Products, which is the distribution business that we sell to independent retailers down here in the state of Florida. It's also our logistics hub for the rest of the business. So it supports all of the logistical things that go on from importing and shipping product all over. And then we have our three stores called Dog Perfect uh, that are part of that as well. And and so you still own this with what a couple partners? Uh, I, I own about ninety five percent of it. Okay. There's a couple of guys that have a couple percent. Yeah. Okay, so really, you know, your career was built up in the cell phone industry, right? Selling phones, then then retail outlets, and then the uh, protection plans, and you have your big exit, and you're thinking retirement. I'm a family office. I'm going to make some investments and more hobby than next career. But now, right, one the keys get turned over to you, and you turn this single product into a major operation with three different 
highly functioning divisions. So what what's the plan? What what is how does this hobby to you know major enterprise? Uh, what, what's what's going to be the the outcome? Uh, I think what we're trying to do with this is we envision that we can continuously add new products into our suite or uh, different little kind of pet related businesses. We're kind of setting it up to be a almost like its own little mutual fund built around the distribution business, like the logistical hub as, as the core of the business. So now that we have that all set up, we can bring in whatever type of products that we want. So probably about two or three weeks ago, we had our big pet trade show in, in Orlando. And for the first time since 2017, we launched a whole suite of new products under the Snuggle Puppy name, which we hadn't done. So we launched beds, the heartbeat and um, new Snuggle Puppy colors, which we hadn't had in five years. And we also, um, last October, we bought a supplement company. Um, so we launched uh, two lines of supplements for dogs as well. So one of the things that we're figuring out about the having the um, logistical business and then having Snuggle Puppy, which is kind of like we're it's a product that people really only buy once, right? So you you make this purchase, you have your puppy, your puppy sleeps great at night, you're all happy, but we had nothing else to backfill that from a product perspective. So now we're kind of looking at Snuggle Puppy as a top of the funnel product that we can bring people into our kind of uh, vertically integrated infrastructure and just start pumping them different products and services from there for the whole life cycle of the dog. Oh, Rob, this is fantastic. I think, you know, for our audience, we're, we're really focused on M&A, but the fact that you take this like major exit and turn hobby into, you know, a real strategic plan to keep growing and growing and growing. I know now you're on, on the hunt to buy companies, buy products, right? Because of this. And potentially sell them too. Yep. Right. So we kind of look at this as like, we may buy a bit and we might sell a bit at any point during there. So we're kind of like thinking of the, you know, the next exit might, we doubt it'll be a single exit. Sure. It'll probably be just be multiple things. So we could sell off, we could grow the supplement business, for example, and then sell it off. Yep. But we might buy something like somebody selling like a leashes and collars business and we might buy that and bring that in. So we might bring things in and out. We've looked at a couple more deals already. Yep. There are obvious things if you think about life cycle of a dog, like from, you know, week, we're usually touching them at week eight to 10 with Snuggle Puppy. And then, you know, you get, you know, this dog that could live 10, 12, 15 years. And you think about how many products could you sell them in between there is kind of like where we're setting everything up. And some will work and some won't. So we may bring some in, sell some off. We don't really know exactly how that work was is really like a vertically integrated solution that's kind of unique. There isn't, there isn't much like it around that we've seen. That's great. I actually, I love this story because I did something similar, right? I built a company called CrowdZone and partnered with a guy out of Excel Partners who had a company called BiFi. And they were essentially ideas and we built them together and the two really converged. And at one point, 
my side of the business, CrowdZone, CBS walked in and said, we want to own this. And so we took that opportunity to right, sell off essentially an asset and fund the business going forward, the one that we thought was bigger. And what's great is today we have clients that are like this, that they grow a business over 30 years and find, wow, I actually have three or four businesses here. What if we were to divest or sell off the businesses that are not core to our future, where we really want to spend our time or where we see the biggest opportunity. And I think what's so great for those founders is not only can you get rid of or sell off a business that provides some liquidity for investors and family members and give you growth capital, but it really focuses all your attention on the potential big winner and you know how hard business is, right? That focus is really, really important. So I like the fact that you'll be able to see, oh, should we keep this one, sell this one? Maybe we need to buy and grow a category. That's great to be, they, be fortunate enough to be that flexible. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of learnings in there. Could I could I step back? Because really, your big exit, I don't want to like overlook that for our listeners. Maybe you could talk to me about, you know, what what were the biggest learnings? What mistakes do you think you made, or things that you did really well that other people could take from? Sure, I think the the thing that we did really well was that we were prepared in our data room. I think that a lot of organizations that were coming in to look at us probably felt like they could come in and, and, you know, this is a small business with these guys that are kind of like cell phone store guys. And, you know, I think they felt like when they came in, they were going to be able to like really put pencil to paper and say, hmm, I see some angles here where, where we could do a lot better with this business. And I think once they got under the hood and saw how, you know, disciplined and detailed and organized and accurate our bookkeeping and all the other stuff was especially as it related to claims management and stuff like that being in an insurance business that that was probably the biggest win from us that stopped people from coming in and saying oh you know you guys think you're worth x but you're really only worth y you know that that was probably the the biggest win yeah um you know i think on the the hindsight part i think that you know that second step of the transaction, we we kind of got retraded a little bit at the last minute, you know, where these guys started all of a sudden, like calling all our customers and saying like, oh, you know, like, I don't think your big customers are going to stick with you guys. I'm talking to them and maybe they're going to go somewhere else. And, you know, we got retraded a little bit mm-hmm. at the end. And it was kind of like that was a learning experience because we kind of felt like like I would never do that again. Yeah, you know, we already yeah. looked at some people started talking to us about our pet business last year and we weren't in a position to do anything, but we wanted to have the conversation. And the first thing we let out of the gate is, you know, when you come with an offer and if you say anything about retrading us, we're walking away because yeah. we don't need the deal. So I, I would definitely encourage people to be prepared for the fact that somebody's going to try and retrade them at the one yard line for a yeah. better deal. Yeah. And they have to be ready to kind of, at those points, it's usually whoever needs it the least is going to win, right? So yeah. if, you're des- if you show you're desperate and you really want it or need it, then it's going to show to that these people are pros and they're going to take advantage of that. I love the the advice, Rob, because the two really tie together, right? So yes, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot to say on that. 
a lot of buyers that everybody wants a good deal, right? And so mm -hmm. going into a transaction, uh, a buyer might say, yeah, I'm willing to pay within this range. And that range might be really attractive to you. And their plan is to go in and do due diligence and find all the little holes, all the missing data points, all the questions that they can come up with. And you had your data room in order, Right. So you're able to push back. And we've been in these kind of management meetings where you're going through all of this data with a buyer. And when you have a CFO or someone sitting in that seat who can share information really clearly, really cleanly, instantly, it shuts down their ability to come back and say, oh, we're going to have to ding you for that. Now, it to your point, it, it doesn't mean that they're not going to try it at the end. And I think that's where kind of time comes in to these deals where you're, you're emotionally ready to sell. You're already thinking about what's that vacation I'm going to get to take or where, where am I going to go buy my summer house or my new house? And so you're emotionally invested in this. And, and it's very hard when somebody, a buyer comes and says, hey, I think we're going to need to pay a little bit less because we couldn't get the financing for X, Y, and Z. I just encourage all founders to understand that knowing your buyer and what their reputation is and what their game plan is before going in is so important, right? We run transactions where our investment bankers won't let certain buyers even bid because they know what their game plan is and it isn't consistent, you know, with creating the exit that our founders deserve. So a lot of our answers tie back to having the best possible representation that would not ever allow that. Yes, it happens, but being totally prepared. It's going to happen are, almost yep. on every deal, right? They're going to try. They're like, gonna, why wouldn't they? Yep, yep. We're we're, you know, why we're in one right. We're in one they? right now, and we're anticipating it. And the founder is saying, "Hey, mm -hmm. if they come back with anything less, like, yep, it's going to be a little bit of a game of chicken. We know who we're dealing with. We signed up for it. We went in eyes wide open, and we're going to see what happens. But yeah, okay. Yeah. So those are great, great pieces of advice. <laughs> Let me, let me ask you, how did you celebrate when you had that, the first sale, the 60%, any vacations, you buy something new, you know, where were you from a family perspective too? Um, we didn't really do anything. You know, I did end up buying my Florida house, but I was already looking for a house way before then. So we ended up uh, closing on it in February and definitely the transaction helped, but I wasn't one of the you know, go buy a Ferrari guy and a guy. Yeah. It's not, not really my thing. So you know, we just kind of life, life was pretty normal for me, you know, out, coming out of that. Uh, I guess my, my one big thing I did do for myself is I promised myself I would always fly in first class. I, that's, yeah. that was my gift to myself. So I just, that's great. I don't want to fly coach anymore, but that's, that was really it. You know, it just isn't that big of a deal, I guess. It's just, Oh, it's fantastic. You know, but it's it. a lifestyle it was a lifestyle change, but that's otherwise cool. I didn't, didn't change my, the way I live really at all. Obviously, the biggest thing that I did personally was I put away money for my two nieces and my nephew to go to college. That's great. Um, so now the, the the youngest of them is in, he's just finishing his freshman year in college. So I've got two through and I got one a quarter of the way through. And so that was, that was my kind of thing. I don't have kids. So, um, you know, I didn't have to worry about setting up funds for them. Yep. You know, so it was very simple for me. I just... That's continue great. to just be same same person, I guess. Yeah, that's great. But what a gift to your nieces, nephews. That's fantastic. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is it's an amazing story. I really appreciate you you sharing it with us, Rob. 
this idea that you built something amazing, you have your exit, and then you're just investing, which is feels like more of a hobby because you're thinking retirement and all of a sudden you're kind of tossed into a new opportunity and all the lessons, the kind of the operating lessons that you took right. from your previous career have made this enormously successful. And you can see how much opportunity there is to buy and sell you know, divisions or products out of your portfolio. So right. and uh, being a pet is huge, right? Yeah. So it's a huge growth area. You yeah. know, we didn't really talk about the impact that the pandemic had on our business was unbelievable because everybody adopted puppies and we have like the number one selling puppy product. So our business went through the roof, you know, during that time period and that created all sorts of other issues. But, you know, we've, we've kind of selected this time to, instead of doing like a, consultative approach you know this this time what i did was i hired a bunch of really great executives so over the last three months i've added a cmo world-class cmo world-class coo and a president for our distribution business so adding these execs that you can really lean on is kind of like my jet fuel for this one um so i got it as far as i could without them and and now it's time to to add some fuel and, and see what these, these folks can do to help us get over the hump. That's awesome, Rob. All right. Well, is there one person that you would like to thank who contributed to your personal and professional success? It's the question we, we end with, with every guest. Mm, yeah, I would say like, uh, probably my first boss bill at the, uh, car stereo stores. So, you know, it, it's kind of like one of the guys that you learned a lot from, but he didn't know he was teaching you. So just just by his everyday actions. Uh, so probably him because, you know, he taught me like to look at people and not not judge them. He was the most like unjudging person ever. Could Any person could walk in and he treated them like they were an old friend. Um, so he just, you know, I learned a ton from that guy. That's great. Rob, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I know, uh, you know, our guests are going to get a ton out of it and really wish you yeah, the best, best of success with the pet industry. Just tell right? them all to work on that data room from day one. You got it. That's what we're doing this time. Data, data, data. Yep. Yep. That is big. <laughs> Rob, thank you. All right, Todd. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.